All right. My name is Nathan Oates. This is Emmaus Church, and you're welcome here. Glad you've come to be with us today. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. Uh, Josh is going to start out in, in Romans chapter 9. He'll give you the page number in a little bit. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We'll get you one of those. We've got Ezra handing out Bibles today, buddy. That's a good job. There's also communication cards in these Bibles, and if you're new with us and would like to fill out a card, uh, just keep your hand up and we'll get your Bible with a card. You can hand off contact information if you would like to do that, if that would help you, uh, or you can share a prayer request or any kind of comment about the morning. It's always good to hear comments from folks who are new in this space and new with our community. You don't see your own cobwebs after a while, so it's helpful to hear how people's experiences uh, were here at Emmaus. All right, well, we're in week three of a new series called Standing on Shoulders, How Lives Well-Lived Help Us See Jesus. It's the end of the preaching calendar, the end of the year in the Christian calendar. Advent begins a whole new year. So I thought over the summer it would be sweet to spend the last four weeks of the year of 2018 uh, learning from lives of those who have followed Christ but have come from places or perspectives or traditions or emphases that are kind of not native to us or at least uh, a little bit different from the tradition that we've um, been a part of this church specifically has been a part of um, for a long time. In other words, it can be really easy for a family to get really good at a few things. It can be really easy for a, a specific church to really focus on a few things. And you get really good at that. And that can, be, that can be like your sweet spot. That can be what you should focus on. But the kind of the shadow side is the propensity to forget that you actually got this great recipe that your family is all famous for from somebody who wasn't even in your family, right? You should, that was handed down to you. Or maybe you're standing on the shoulders of, of, of those who have gone faithfully through real trials and real pain, like this, this writer of the hymn that Melissa talked about. And we've got this clarity of the possibility of peace in the face of suffering because of the good work and the faithfulness of somebody that we never even met Right? We didn't, it didn't start with us. We're standing on shoulders. So there's this wisdom, I think, in, uh, in inviting some people in uh, to, to, to speak to us about our shared love for Jesus. But they're those, those I've invited are those that are coming at it just a little bit different than what is maybe typical, if there can be a typical, um, for, for our church. So last, last Sunday, Sister Maximilian Marie shared with us. I got to interview her. This is a Dominican sister that joined us last, last week. It's online. I hope you'll watch it if you missed it. It's just a really powerful conversation um, about Christ and giving our lives completely to him. Um, and she, coming from this position of being in this historically rooted religious order that's existed for hundreds of years before, um, before even before the Protestant uh, Reformation happened. Do we agree on all fine points of theology? No, we don't. But we can mutually encourage one another to surrender our hearts more fully to Jesus. And I thought that was just a beautiful thing. And I hope you got that from that last week. Uh, I'm going to tell you a, a, a little bit of a rough story because I want to kind of put a fine point on the power of what we're doing here right now. After lunch, Sister Maximilian Marie and my wife and Angela Henning were walking down the sidewalk. Uh, they were bringing her back to her, her car. And this truck pulled up, slowed down, rolled the window down, and just unleashed this profanity-ridden insult right at her. And then hit the gas and took off. And it was, it was horrible and, um, and embarrassing and awful, and nobody really knew what to say and do, and you're hosting this person. And, um, 
And, and, and the, as I thought about that, Carmen didn't even share it with me until the next day because she was so bothered by it. Um, I thought, you know what? Uh, that's the way we do disagreement more and more in our culture, right? That's what it looks like now. I see that. I don't agree with it on some surface level, and so I'm going to throw out an insult and I'm going to drive away. Totally unhelpful, totally lacking in courage, absolutely uninterested in a conversation, right? Part of the beauty of this series is hearing the perspectives of others. That's the main thing. And sort of a secondary benefit to this series is modeling an alternative to what has become just the automatic, like, interaction of people in our culture that don't agree with each other, which is this drive-by insult stuff. Hopefully, uh, what we're modeling here is a compelling alternative to what has become so commonplace that we can show how and, and even engage in, even when it's challenging, uh, we can engage in a conversation um, to learn, to listen well. So I, I'm really hoping that this, uh, this series ends up having kind of multiple beneficial aspects to, to us as a community, trying to make a real difference in the culture, trying to offer a compelling alternative to what we see all around us. All right. So I'm so excited to have with us again, I missed him the last two times because I was out of the country, um, but a good friend of ours who has taught here before and really kind of opened the door to some of this more interfaith dialogue. In fact, not truly interfaith because uh, Pastor Joshua leads a Messian or a Jewish community in Sacramento, which has embraced Jesus as, the, as Messiah. And he's going to share much more about that. So a brother, a Christian, and yet coming from a perspective that maybe sounds different for many of us, ethnically different to almost, for almost all of us. I only know of a few uh, Jewish folks in our, in our church community here. Would you help welcome with me Rabbi Joshua Rubenstein? Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Pastor Nathan. And also for schlepping that out. Yeah, I appreciate you know, that. That's Thank what you. I do. I <clears throat> schlep. Professional schlepper. <laughs> you have to forgive my voice today. Uh, some of you have heard me speak here before, <clears throat> but I've got the black lung uh, from all of the good, wonderful, delicious air that we have right now. Uh, I say delicious because you can actually taste it. <clears throat> and uh, it'll be a good thing. Maybe it'll help me to be a little bit more calm. Uh, I'm used to like kind of yelling a lot. So maybe this is a good opportunity for me to be a little bit more quiet. Um, Pastor Nathan has allowed me to come and to speak to you guys multiple times. And I know that the polite thing to say is I'm honored to be here with you. But it's also insanely true. And so I don't want to just say I'm honored to be here with you and, and have it be something that's casual. I'm really honored to be here with you. This is a really unique opportunity. It's something that not a lot of nice Jewish boys get invited, right, to come and talk to a church on a Sunday morning, much less get invited back. So that's a really wonderful thing. And so it's wonderful to be able to come to you today because Yes, we do share Yeshua. We share Jesus. And yet, I'm coming at it from a, a different story, if you will. Um, and when Pastor Nathan shared the, the theme of this idea of standing on shoulders, um, I thought very naturally of my father. And it was my father's life that was well-lived that allowed me to see 
Jesus, but also allowed me to know him by his Hebrew name, Yeshua, that helped me to understand that there is no contradiction, though many people scream this very loudly, there is no contradiction in a nice Jewish boy loving the Jewish Messiah. In fact, it's strange in some ways if you think about it that like the one thing Jews can't believe in is the Jewish Messiah. And if you think about it in that way, then it's almost like maybe the greatest trick that the enemy has played on my people is to keep us separated from our one hope. And so this is a really wonderful opportunity, and I'm excited to share with you the reality that like I, I wouldn't be here. I, I probably wouldn't be in love with the Messiah. I certainly wouldn't be leading a Messianic congregation if it wasn't for the faithfulness of my dad, if it wasn't for what he went through and the miracle of his life that allowed really a shift in my family destiny. And so it's, it's rare in general for people to be able to say that they're a Messianic Jew, that they're a Jew who loves Yeshua, and even more rare to say, I'm a second-generation Messianic Jew. And so my parents paved a way for me and fought through some things that like, I've never had to fight through. When I was a kid growing up, it was natural and normal within my family to be Jewish and to love the Jewish Messiah. And that's incredibly rare. I mean, like, maybe, maybe there's like 200, 300,000 Messianic Jews in the entire world out of a Jewish population total of 12 million, all right? So we're like, a, like a, a fraction of a percentage. And so the reality that I was blessed by God to grow up in a family where I was taught that I'm Jewish, and then like we would watch like the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, because that's how I came to faith in Yeshua and Jesus was, and this was the old school before animation was amazing. This was back when animation was animation, right? And so like I'm watching Aslan give his life for Edmund, and I'm like, Edmund's such a jerk. Don't do it, Aslan. He's not worth it. And so my mom could say to me, even though I'm a nice Jewish boy, hey, that's what Jesus did for you. And so I get to be in love with Jesus today because of the, the hard road in some ways that my parents went down. I mean, my dad was an acid-dropping marijuana farmer living in a teepee in the mountains of New Mexico. Okay? So when I say there were some miracles involved in my dad's life, and when you see some of the pictures of him today, you're going to be like, it is a miracle that Josh is not a psycho. Or maybe more of a psycho than I am. Um, and all of this, guys, just so you know, is a legacy then that I now get to pass on to my children and a heart and a love for my people, for the Jewish people, and also a heart and a love for the Jewish Messiah that I get to now pass on again. And it's such a blessing to be able to to pass on something even stronger. And if you don't mind, if you would open your Bibles to Romans 9. So this is in the Brit Hadashah. Uh, that just means this is in the New Testament. Um, and it's, so it's towards the back of the Bible. Um, and 
This is the book of Romans, and it's chapter 9, <clears throat> and it's page 787, if you're playing along at home, page 787, and somebody yells, bingo, bingo. <clears throat> I know who Paul was writing about and writing to because that's what I experience every week in my community. Uh, we have Jews and we have Gentiles in the same room, getting along, loving Jesus well together, trying to figure out how to do that. And frankly, that's something that's kind of uncommon because for the last 2,000 years, there's been this false dichotomy between the Jewish people and the Jewish Messiah, right? You're either part of the synagogue or you're part of the church, but you can't be part of both, right? You're either Jewish and you reject Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, or you embrace Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and you have to reject your Jewish life and your Jewish heritage and your Jewish traditions. So the fact that I can even come to you and read Romans 9 is because I get to stand on the shoulders of my father. And I understand what this book means because I lead a Messianic congregation that he planted that I never had any intention of leading, um, but I think that that's the way God planned it. My father passed uh, seven, no, eight years ago now, eight years ago from an aggressive cancer, Merkel cell carcinoma, uh, which is actually a skin cancer, uh, but it went interior, went inside his body. Um, and by the time they found it, he was stage four. Um, just had a few months left to live. And I remember my mom taking me out into the hall in the hospital room and saying, you need to pray about leading Beth Yeshua. That's the name of our congregation. And I said, there's no need to. I know that's not for me. So funny thing about prayer. <laughs> so like when you actually be quiet and then listen Turns out God might have something else in mind for you. And I had what I thought was like a really well-charted out family destiny of like where we were headed as a family. And God was like, actually this. And I never wanted to be a minister because I saw my dad be a rabbi for 20 plus years. And any of you have grown up as like pastor's kids or like rabbi's kids. I don't know how many other rabbi's kids are here. Probably not a lot. <clears throat> you know that ministry can be tough can be really difficult on families, and it can be a hard thing. And so I saw the drama and the, and the difficulty, and I was like, I don't need to be part of that. And God was like, actually, you do. And so here I am leading a community, reading things like this on Shabbat to our community, wrestling through life because of what my dad passed on to me. So this is Romans 9, and beginning at the beginning of that chapter, verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ, in Messiah. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Ruach HaKodesh, through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And I don't think that Paul wrote this in hyperbole or to like drive a point home. I mean, do you know that Paul was going to be the next great rabbi? 
He was being trained by Gamaliel, and not like a messianic rabbi. He was going to be the next great leader, maybe, of the Jewish people, spiritually. He was in charge of murdering Jewish people who loved Jesus. And can you imagine the weight that that had on him when Jesus showed up on the road? So I don't think that Paul is saying like in any sort of small way like, oh, I, oh, I, I have such anguish. No, I think he had anguish. He had murdered his brothers before he was one of them. And he says here, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Messiah for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I'm, I'm not there yet, frankly. I'm not in a place where I could actually say, wow, I wish that I could give up my own future hope of being with Messiah if it would mean that all of my Jewish people would know Messiah. Because there's, I think, probably still too much selfishness inside of me. But there's this reality of deep anguish for my people. I mean, do you understand? And if you read through Romans 9, 10, and 11, you see that God has allowed my people to have a hardness in their hearts and a blindness in their eyes to Messiah. He's allowed it. And why? So the nations can come in. And so there's this heaviness upon my heart as a nice Jewish kid, like, God, when is it our turn? So there was in the 60s and the 70s, like this little, little restoration of the Jewish people. Maybe thousands came to faith in Messiah. But someday, guys, according to Romans, the millions of Jewish people are going to come to faith in Messiah. And it will be like life from the dead, is what Paul says. I think what that means is multiple levels. I think we'll actually see literally people be raised to life from the dead. There will be such supernatural power moving in that time. And I also think that it will be like life from the dead for the body of Messiah. You know, for a long time, the enemy has worked to divide the Jewish people and the nations from one another. But imagine all of us together loving Messiah well. Imagine the spiritual life that that would bring. It would be like nothing we've ever seen before. So how did I get here? Well, once upon a time. Um, let's see, where's that first slide? So this is four generations of Rubensteins from back in the day. Um, my dad is the bundle. Uh, there in the arms of his dad, that's Herbert Rubenstein, uh, who is a nice Jewish boy, and then that's Morris, and then the great-grandfather, who honestly I can't remember his name right now, that's embarrassing, but um, he was the first generation of Rubensteins that came actually to the United States fleeing persecution, uh, fleeing because many times within Jewish communities they were killed, um, often by people who called themselves Christians, and often around the time of Easter, there would be like these passion plays, right, that would stir up hatred for the Jewish people. The Jews had murdered Christ, so let's go murder them. And so the Jewish people were like, wow, we need to get out. So the Rubensteins came over. It's a similar story, actually, to my wife, 
her family came over to get away from those attacks, which were called the pogroms. Um, and they settled here in the United States. And honestly, they were not super excited about being Jews anymore. Because for most of history, it hasn't been super exciting to be a Jew. Eventually, people come to kill you. And if I look at the rising rates of anti-Semitism, like here in the United States even, guys, like two open anti-Semites were elected to Congress. Like who openly hate Israel and Jews. That's the world we're living in right now. And that was the world that they were trying to escape. And so they came here to the United States because this is a place where you could be free, right? You could be free as a Jew. And so Herbert settled down, uh, not with a nice Jewish girl, but with a nice Gentile girl in Oakland. And they had my dad. Uh, next slide there. Richard Rube Rubenstein was his name. Everybody called him Rube because it was like an abbreviation for Rubenstein. People still call us like Ruby or Rube. So he was raised in this half-Jewish home with a Jewish dad. Um, and this was like kind of like your quintessential sort of like uh, American story, if you will. You know, he was in the Cub Scouts. He was in the Boy Scouts. And uh, life was pretty normal. Uh, his mom was like into really radical politics. They lived in Oakland, right? And she loved the idea of Israel because Israel had already been born. The nation had been born again. Um, and so she was really excited about Israel because Israel seemed to be embracing a bunch of like socialist, you know, policies. And so she was like, yeah, Israel, that's cool. So she married this nice Jewish guy and she's like, maybe someday we'll go live on a kibbutz and we'll be like real like radical, like Bolsheviks, you know, and that sort of stuff. She was like really into radical politics. Uh, but my, my grandfather, Herbert, was not so much uh, into that. And so they were raising my dad. And my dad, from a really young age, had like a real heart and a real compassion for people. Just loved people, loved to make people feel welcome, loved to like rescue and kind of redeem people. And so it made a lot of sense that later he would come to be a rabbi, right? Because that's a big part of ministry is just loving people, right? It's just like wherever you are, I see you, and I'm going to love on you. And that was a real heart of his, which, honestly, I, I hope to be that loving someday. I'm a little bit more, like, you know, I want to, like, karate chop things and, like, no. And, and so I'm actually, like, trying to move into that legacy of my dad a little bit more, uh, which, you know, he was like a teddy bear. I mean, he was just, like, this really sweet man. Um, I'm, I'm mellowing out a little bit as I age. So, like, for example, he won this award from the Boy Scouts for, like, they were on a hike, and some guy got hurt, and he, like, hiked, I forget how many miles, it was, like, seven miles back or something to get help uh, for this guy. And that was just the heart of compassion that my dad had. Well, fast forward a little bit, so next slide here. And that escalated quickly, didn't it? That's my dad right over there in the beard um, and, the, and the glasses and the bandana, like, in full hippie mode. Um, and this is actually not my mom. This is his first wife. So how did little, like, you know, Cub Scout, Richard Rubenstein, Rube, go from, like, you know, Cub Scout to a guy so radical he was kicked out of Berkeley? He was that, he was that radical, right? So his parents got divorced when he was around 12, 13 years old. Um, and when they split, um, he stayed with his mom there in Oakland, and she got remarried to a man who also shared her love for radical politics. And so my dad, who was actually training at the time for his bar mitzvah, their house just totally shifted 
and kind of that Jewish identity left with his father. And as his stepfather came in, politics, politics was their new religion. And there was this real ideal, if you will, in their minds that you could change the world through politics, right? That if you just set up a political system in the right way, if you just made the right laws, you could get everybody to get along. You could create utopia, right? In fact, Marx and all these other people, nice Jewish boys, trying to create the messianic era without Messiah. There's a problem with that. People. People are the problem with that. People's hearts are depraved, and we are wicked, and we're selfish, and we don't naturally seek the good of others. Man, I, people who say to me, like, children are born inherently good, I'm like, have you ever met a child? They will lie to your face for a cookie. I have four children. All of my children have lied to me, and I'm sure I've lied a lot of times too. So as his parents split apart and this new influence came in, my dad got more and more involved in politics because this was like part of his heart to help people, right? He just thought, man, if we could all like legislate peace, it would happen. If you could just make everybody toe the line, it's going to be okay. And it was a brokenness, and it was a brokenness inside of him that he could never really reconcile until the miracle of Messiah came into his life. And so radical politics were the thing. He was kicked out of Berkeley around the same time. He bought a gun, burned his draft card, thought about moving to Canada. He was a bad hombre. In fact, um, there was... <laughs> There's a, uh, a passport photo of him that looks like super sketchy. Like you would not want this dude to like meet you in a dark alley um, where he's just like kind of like this and big bushy hair, like all freaky looking and stuff like that. I'm like, that's my dad. That's awesome. <clears throat> so there was a big part of my dad that wasn't always like warm teddy bear. Let me hug you. There was also a little bit of my dad that was fiery. And then he began to rethink things as he separated from the influence of his parents. And as he got involved in radical politics and as he met more people, he started to realize that a lot of what had been told to him, kind of this religion of radical politics, if you will, didn't quite actually line up with his own beliefs. So, for example, he had claimed conscientious objector status you know, coincidentally, around the time he burned his draft card. Um, and he realized, no, as a Jewish man, I absolutely believe that sometimes war is appropriate. It was war that kept many of the Jewish people that were in the death camps from being fully executed. It was war that saved our people. It was war, in fact, that the Jewish people fought because the moment they were declared a state, every Arab nation attacked them. And it was war that saved their lives and saved the Jewish people from being wiped out again. And so he started rethinking all of this radical politics and everything that had been kind of sold to him. And he wasn't really in line with that anymore. And so he began this search for truth. And, and for 
a lot of the Jewish people who came to faith in Messiah in the 60s and 70s, you talk to them, and that's why my dad is kind of a prototypical example of this. They all had this reality of like this search for truth and this wanting to like break out from just the tradition of Judaism, the tradition of their families, and like find out what was actually true. So this was the double-edged reality of the counterculture in the 60s and the 70s, right? Part of it healthy, part of it wanting to break free and actually experience things that were true and real and alive and not just because somebody told you, but because you had experienced it. But then the downside of that is that so many of them got lost in sex and drugs and rock and roll and all of this other nonsense because they thought that's what would fill them. And so, so many of these Jewish people that went on this journey ended up actually finding the truth. They found the Jewish Messiah. They found Yeshua. My dad found Yeshua, although it took a little bit of time. If we can go to the next slide. My dad was so radical, he was kicked out of Berkeley. So he went to Santa Cruz, which it was a brand new school, UC Santa Cruz. Uh, in fact, it was like so new that they didn't even really do grades. Like you just interviewed with your professor at the end of your class and you'd like have a conversation with them about all of the things you had learned and maybe smoke some weed with them and they'd be like, all right, you pass. And it was like, sweet, thanks, man. Uh, really rigorous education. So my dad graduated from Santa Cruz. I don't know if Santa Cruz is still like that. I don't know. Um, and, uh, and he went back and forth between these communes with a bunch of his hippie friends that were down in Santa Cruz with him also, and it turns out a bunch of these crazy hippie friends, also Jewish, also on a search for truth. And in fact, most of my dad's hippie friends found Yeshua, found Jesus before my dad. My dad was like kind of the, the last holdout, and I think a lot of it was drugs. My dad was majorly addicted to drugs. And I don't mean like, yeah, he experimented. I mean, my dad lived in a teepee in one of these communes on the Continental Divide in New Mexico and had a notch down the center pole for every time he dropped acid. And it was quite a few notches. I remember because my mom told me about this later. And when I would have conversations with my dad, he would talk to me about the moment that Messiah set him free from drugs. We don't always talk about the supernatural when we talk about Messiah setting people free. But my dad was supernaturally set free, even though he was bouncing back and forth between all these communes and trying desperately to fill himself up with drugs. He was set free by his Messiah from all drugs in a moment. So how did they find Messiah up on a commune? Well, a lot of his friends had already found Messiah. But believe it or not, it was Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses came to this commune in the mountains of New Mexico, which was seriously like an hour past any town, right? And like you've got to go through all these gates. Like how they even found them, we don't know. And they started doing a Bible study with my dad and my mom, and my mom was raised a nice Baptist girl back in the day before she went counterculture. And my dad was raised a nice Jewish boy before he went counterculture, right? So they're studying the word of God, these Jehovah's Witnesses, with my mom the Baptist and my dad the Jew. And my mom the Baptist remembered from when she was a kid all the scriptures that she had memorized in the Baptist church. And she was like, I don't think that what you're saying actually means that. 
So she starts arguing with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And so my dad, then he's like, yeah, I don't think that my rabbi ever taught that either. And so like they're arguing with the Jehovah's Witnesses from like Baptist and Jewish, like tag team, like you go, yeah. And there's just like, and so the Jehovah's Witnesses left. They're just like, we're not even going to come up here anymore. But my parents kept reading the Bible. And my dad was at the lowest point in his life, he says, when he really was regretting a lot of the life decisions that he had made. And he was going to take his own life. And he opened up the Bible. It was like his last ditch effort. And he opened, you know how sometimes you just kind of open the Bible and naturally it falls open to the book of Psalms because it's kind of in the middle, you know, so it just kind of sort of falls open. That's what he did. And he started reading, and like all the words of King David just started coming to him. And it was a comfort, right? Because King David would do these prayers or, or laments to God of like, how, how is it that my enemies prosper and flourish and righteous men are dying like dogs? Where are you? But then David would always say, because he had a heart after God, but you're my hope. But in you, there's life. But in you, there's truth. I know who you are, God. And my dad saw that, and he got hungry for it. And he's like, that's what I need. And so he went to one of his good friends, one of these hippies, uh, who now is a Messianic rabbi in Israel, in the nation of Israel. Um, and they prayed, um, and he was set free from drugs. And they didn't know what to do, I mean, because, like, they were these hippies living in the commune, you know, and, like, their cash crop was weed, right? They grew marijuana. That was their thing, and that was before it was legal. So it was a big deal. They're like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get, like, real jobby jobs? And so when they fell in love with Messiah, they ended up moving. Uh, so that's my brother, my older brother, Jacob. That's my mom in the white pants, Sherry Rubenstein. And that's my dad right back behind her with, like, full, like, caveman like he's got like a like the Jufro sort of going on. Um, it's pretty pretty dope. Uh, but the next slide, they fell in love with Messiah. They got to do something with their lives, and they recognize that they can't just stay there in the commune because it's just going to eat them up, and they've got to go somewhere. So they go and they live with my uncle in Colorado. My dad was really good working with his hands, so he got a job as a blacksmith restoring this old historic fort. So he did all this blacksmithing and stuff. And then they were like, man, we love Yeshua so much. we got to get involved. And so they went to a church. And here they were, these like wild and wooly hippies, like coming out of the, you know, the mountains, right? Like, hi, we're here to love Jesus. And all of these like normal people in church were like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's great. But, you know, to their credit, it was actually really cool. They found out like my mom had a degree and like a master's degree in education. So they're like, you can teach the children. And she looked like a hobo. And they were like, you can be in charge of the children. Go for it. So my mom was back there teaching the kids. My dad was like part of worship. And they started getting discipled. They started understanding what was going on. But it was also a time of conflict, okay? Because for my mom, this felt normal to like go into church life. But my dad was raised quasi in the synagogue, but mostly on the streets in Berkeley. So going into a church as a Jewish man, who had fallen in love with the Jewish Messiah, and he had prayed with his Jewish friend, who was also a follower of the Jewish Messiah, to come to faith. It was strange to him when he would go into churches, because this is the you know early 70s, and the churches would say to him, oh, that's cool that you're a Jew, but don't worry about that anymore. God's done with the Jews, man. Let it go. 
that's cool. You're a Christian now. As if like his DNA magically changed overnight because he believed in the Jewish Messiah. Weird, right? So he would go and he'd have conversations with the pastor like, okay, but like what about Passover? And he's like, well, you could just celebrate communion. Okay, but when I read my Bible, it says that I'm supposed to celebrate Passover throughout my generations with my children to tell them the story of how we were set free from slavery. And the pastor would be like, yeah, that's the Old Testament. You don't need to do that anymore. We've got the New Testament now. And I don't know if you guys have ever heard of something called replacement theology. But replacement theology was essentially this lie, I think of it as a lie, a theological lie that says that God is done with the Jewish people. They had their chance. They rejected Messiah. God's done with them. And all of the prophecies that refer to the Jewish people in a positive way, so all the blessings, prophetic blessings, those are for the church. All the curses, though, well, the Jews can keep those. The curses are still for the Jews, but magically, metaphorically, the Jews means the church when it comes to blessings. And so it was this teaching that God was done with the Jews, that they get all the curses, that they're accursed of God, they, were, they deserve to be destroyed, right? And that instead, the church is now the new chosen people of God. Well, there's some truth in there. There's like a grain of truth in there, which is that the church is grafted into a Jewish root. And all of the nations who love Yeshua, who love Jesus, are in love with the king of the Jews. Do you know you're in love with a Jew? Way to go. But at this time, what that meant was like, forget the Jew thing. Like, let that go. That's not part of who you are. But the Holy Spirit was stirring up inside of my dad and a bunch of these other Jewish kids. Like, I can't let that go. I, that doesn't make any sense to me that I have to stop being Jewish to worship Jesus, who was a Jew. All of his disciples were Jews. They were hanging out in Israel doing Jew stuff. This doesn't make any sense, right? Because he was coming at it from a completely different place. And I just want you to understand, guys, that still that lie hangs on to this day, right? And there's this false dichotomy that still exists where it's like you can be a Christian or you can be a Jew, right? You can't be both because if you're both, you're just you're, you're a poser. You're pretending to be one, but you're not really another. In fact, this is still the major objection of most Jewish people to me. They're like, dude, you're just a Baptist with a beard, bro. You're not even a Jew. I'm like, mm, and I probably do more Jew things than them, right? But like, you, you, you I got to prove my Jew card to you. It's weird, you know, but it's this weird brokenness that's been sewn in. And I don't blame the Jewish people because horrible things have been done to them in the name of Jesus. By the church. And I don't blame the church because the Jewish people have rejected Messiah explicitly for a long time. I blame the enemy. The enemy is involved and he's in there and he's twisting people's hearts to harden them. But there is so much life in Jews coming to faith in the Jewish Messiah. And they all began to experience it around the same time. If we could go to the next slide. We moved to Santa Fe, started a larger Christian school, ministered in prisons. There's my dad on an old school ovation, my mom. And actually that binder right there, 
uh, my dad let me have that binder uh, when he was really sick. And it was all of his handwritten songs uh, that he had written when he first fell in love with Yeshua, when he first fell in love with Jesus. Um, one of these days, maybe, uh, Pastor Nathan will let me come back and I'll sing for you one of the songs. Uh, there's this great one. All of his songs sound like Dylan songs because it was, Dylan was his boy. That was his hero, you know. And so my dad even had like that Darth Vader harmonica thing, you know, or like, anyway, so uh, I'll have to sing. One of his songs was Searching about how he was searching, searching, walking down that lonely road, looking for something he could call his own. Didn't have any peace of mind. There wasn't any he could find in that cold, dark, lonely world, right? And then at the end, he finds Messiah, and it becomes a radiant, gracious world. Next slide, if you would. And so, got all these Jewish kids that are wrestling through, like, how do you be a Jew and love Jesus? Because you go into the church, and they say, drop the Jewish stuff, here's your ham sandwich. You go into the synagogue, <laughs> but a boom, right? Yeah, so. It wasn't quite that explicit, but it was like, dude, stop being a Jew. Don't do Jew stuff. That's weird. You know, let it go. Yeah, so he went into the synagogue. Some of them would go into the synagogue, and they'd be like, okay, you can be a Jew here, but you can't love Jesus. And if you do love him, it has to be on the way down low. You don't mention Jesus in this place. Well, dude, I'm sorry, but if Jesus set you free from drug addiction overnight, you're not going to be quiet about Jesus. You're going to tell people, I met the Messiah. He delivered me from drugs, okay? So there was no room for them in either of these places, and there were really no, like, rabbinic mentors out there. There was nobody that was, like, a rabbi, a messianic rabbi who had walked this road before. But there was this one guy, and his name was Eliezer Erbach, and he was a Holocaust survivor. And he was a person who had come to faith in Messiah. And he reached out to a bunch of these Jewish hippies at some point. This was like late 70s, early 80s. I was around like four, five years old. And he invited my dad to come and have a Passover Seder with him. And like for my dad, my dad said it was like coming home. Because he went and he had this Passover Seder, but he knew Messiah now. And he saw the connection. And he saw how like there was one greater than Moses who came to set the Jewish people free forever, free from sin, free from the grave. Give us a future hope, an ability to be with God, and not just guess that we're going to be with God or fast on Yom Kippur and hope really hard. No, instead we get to be assured of relationship with him. And when he was at that Passover Seder and he saw the connective tissue, man, it was like his heart came alive. And he was like, I get it. I can. I can do both. And so he and my mom started seeking out this weird movement called Messianic Judaism, right? So they went to like a conference, a UMJC conference, um, which is the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. And like they were around for the first time hundreds of other couples just like them who were seeking out Messiah and trying to figure out, how do you love Jesus and be Jewish? And so they both were like in different, like she was in the women's group and he was like in the men's group at some point and they both like came out to each other and they're like, God told me something. They're like, oh really? God told me something too. Oh, you go first. Okay. God told me we're supposed to be part of Messianic Judaism. Me too! 
And so they both went, and like, it was funny, because like, the, we lived in Santa Fe at the time, and the only Messianic congregation in the entire state of New Mexico was in Albuquerque, and it was led by one of my dad's old hippie friends. Going to die from not surprised. And so we started going up to Adat Yeshua, and I got to tell you, like, I had been raised in a church pretty much before this where, like, we would, we would light, like, candles for Hanukkah and stuff like that, but, like, there wasn't, like, a real embracing of Jewish identity because it's kind of hard to do when you're surrounded by a culture that says you need to let that Jewish stuff go, right? So we went into Adat Yeshua, this Messianic congregation, and it was, like, for me, not fun at all. It was like going from something like really normal where like you kind of knew what the rules were into like the wild, wild west. And I thank God that like my parents were navigating through this too, man, because I don't think that I could have come out of this on the other side and still even had Messiah faith. If it hadn't been for my parents like really intentionally working through this, it would have been so difficult for me to actually understand what it meant to be a Jew and to love Jesus. So we started going and it became so normal for us that when we moved to California, we actually looked in Sacramento for a Messianic congregation. It was like, this is the way for Jewish people to love Jesus. And we found that there were a few other families. There was no congregation. So we started getting together on Friday nights, and we would light the candles. And I was like in my teens at this point, right? Um, and so we would sing together, and we'd light the candles, and we would eat. And it would be this beautiful expression of our faith. And my dad was like that heart that had been there from the very beginning to like rescue and redeem people. It was like that heart came alive and he just like kind of became this umbrella and just started pulling people in like, let's love on you. And then God started sending waves of Gentiles in. And we're like, wait, what now? Because like we thought that this was just a Jew thing. This was the restoration of the Jews, right? But then God started sending in these Gentiles who had like what I call a Ruth heart, right? Like your people will be my people, your God will be my God, that sort of thing. And they were just like, we just love the Jewish root and we want to get to know what's going on here. And so my dad would just like put his arms around him. All right, let's figure this out. So man, the book of Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, written to groups of Jews and Gentiles trying to get along, super important to us. If you're ever wondering why Romans 14 ever exists, it's a chapter about not judging people because of what days they celebrate or what foods they eat. Do you know how highly relevant that is in my community right now, 2,000 years later, where people are coming from two totally different traditions? They're like, this is the way to do it. And other people are like, no, this is the way to do it. And I'm like, Romans 14, and just chill out. <laughs> it's hard, right? I mean, you get people that have, like, celebrated Christmas their whole life, and then you get people that have, like, celebrated Hanukkah their whole life, and they get together, and like, well, I can't find Christmas in the Bible. I'm like, well, you can barely find Hanukkah in the Bible, you know? And then they want to argue with each other and stuff like that. That sort of stuff my dad began to navigate through and plow through. And so then when I grew up in it, it was normal for us. And so I could live as a Jew and love Jesus without any contradiction, and embrace a whole community of people that were trying to wrestle through it at the same time. It was amazing. Well, fast forward a little bit, um, and uh, we moved uh, to worship at Adat Yeshua, and then from Beth Yeshua. There's my dad playing the guitar um, once again on this side up there. 
Um, and this was us doing a Passover Seder. Um, and I really think that this was like at my high school. It was like the only place that we could find that was big enough. And we had like 500 people come to our Passover Seder, which was like crazy towns. We were like, who are all these people? And it was because God's doing this new thing of restoration. And I just, I want to leave you with something today that I can only leave to you because of my dad's life. If you read through Romans 9, 10, and 11, and if you do, it just as a blessing to me, as a Jew. Because you'll see in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, you'll see the heart of a Jew for his Jewish people. And guys, there's a prophetic reality that Paul writes about in chapter 11 specifically about the nations. And I wouldn't have even seen this if I hadn't been able to stand on my father. There's a reality of the nations being called to Messiah. And there's a blindness, right? All my Jewish people. But it's for a season. It's for a season. That's what Paul says. Until the fullness of the nations comes in. We're getting very close, it feels like to me, to the fullness of the nations. I mean, like if you look at all of the nations you see that there's been a massive amount of people going out with the good news to almost every nation. And do you know what time it is? It's time for that good news to come to the Jew first. It's time as the blinders are going to be able to come down from the eyes of my Jewish people. It's time for the nations because in Romans eleven fifteen, Paul writes that salvation has come to the nations so that they would provoke the Jewish people to envy. I want to ask, if with an open heart, you would read 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans, and ask God what your part is. Because there is a coming restoration of all things. And it's inaugurated by the return of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who happens to be a Jew, to Jerusalem, his holy city. And he will go to war on behalf of the Jewish people. And he will make all things new. We're laboring towards, in many ways, the exact same thing, which is to go out and make disciples of all nations. But what it feels like sometimes is that we've gone out to like all the nations except for the Jews. And I really believe that if God has placed even like a single Jewish person in your life and you love the king of the Jews, that you should have on your heart a burden for that Jewish person to know their Messiah. And I don't know what that looks like. I do know that the Spirit will give you the words. I do know that the Spirit will give you the love for the Jewish people in your life. Because Jewish people are just people, man. We're a mess. We're certainly unlovely many times. But there is no other Messiah, guys. There's no other way for Jews to be in relationship with God other than Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Frankly, if Jesus isn't the Jewish Messiah, he's nobody's Messiah. And so there should be a 
heart of, I have a role to play. I have something to move towards for the further restoration of this world. I could reach out to that Jewish person in my life. I could show them a living God. Because most Jewish people still just have tradition. They don't know what it's like to actually walk and talk with God. To bring the concerns of their hearts. They think that's reserved for like, for like Moses. For like the holy people. The, the intimacy that you have with God on a daily basis would be like a breath of fresh air to my people. So if you're willing, I'd ask you to pray with me um, that the legacy and the embracing of my dad would also become yours. And it would almost be the flip side of that coin, that my dad has embraced both Jewish people and the nations, and that you guys would also embrace the Jewish people. Because they need you. They need you. So Father, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for for my dad. I thank you that he sacrificed much to be in love with you and to pave this road. But more than anything, I thank you for Messiah. I thank you for the coming kingdom and the coming restoration. And I ask God, whatever our part is in it, whoever you want us to go to and make disciples of, we say yes. Give us hearts, God, for people who don't know you. Hearts of love and compassion. Help us to experience maybe even sadness and mourning for those who are far away from you. Please, God, would you send us, Hineni, Karamai, send me. In Jesus' name.